18, for the wrath of God. We got past verse 18 last time by quite a bit, but I want to pick it up there to get us going. A running start here. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them ever since the creation of the world. His eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. So they are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being, or birds, or four-footed animals, or reptiles, or I might add combinations of the above. So here he's talking about, um, at least initially, about general revelation. Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. That's definitely a reference to what you can know about God by looking around at creation, at what God has made. And by looking at what God has made, one can know, invisible though they are, something about uh, God's eternal power and divine nature. All right. So they are without excuse. Since you have the natural revelation, which has been in existence since God created the world, and since that natural revelation points to certain characteristics of God's nature, God's will, and God's um, objectives for creation, they are without excuse. For though they knew God, and it's that level of knowledge that is being principally spoken of here, but this can be used as a general indictment of anybody who knows God through either natural revelation or specific revelation of Scripture. This definitely applies beyond just those who have only the natural revelation, but it still applies to them. They knew God. At least knew something about God. For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged. That concept of exchanging one for the other is important here. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God... For images resembling a mortal human being, or birds, or four-footed animals, or reptiles. So in other words, they exchanged the glory of God for the glory of things that are created. Now, you know, human beings and birds and four-footed animals and reptiles are all essentially good. God created them. There's nothing wrong with them. The sun is good. God created it and said that it was good. So in and of themselves, there's nothing wrong with them. But when you take them and give them status or position that God did not give them, you've got a problem. And that's exactly what's being done here. 
They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. Just a second. The word images here is what I thought it was. Iconos. Iconos, which we know of as icon, image. Um, we know of icons in several different contexts. Um, the most common on context for an icon today is on a computer screen mm -hmm. in Macintosh or Windows operating system, iconographic display. Click on the icon, double click it to launch the application or open the folder or whatever. We know about icons, especially from that. An image representing something else. We also speak in the New Testament, Paul speaks about Jesus as being the icon of the invisible God. The representation of the, the, the manifest presence of the invisible God. Here he's using icon in, in a negative sense. Iconos. In the glory of the they have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for icons, images resembling a mortal human being or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. This is, of course, idolatry. It's a reference to the practice of most human societies and cultures, even though confronted with the glory of God's creation, they have instead of worshiping the creator in whatever degree of life they have received, they have turned and worshiped the creation, the sun, the moon, the stars, the planet itself, human beings or deities that are shaped like human beings or animals. Who gave us an icon of the cross? The, the cross itself? Who decided that was going to be our icon? The Christians did it. I thought the Romans did it, but yeah. Well, the first utilization of the cross as a symbol for Christ, that developed fairly early in Christian iconography. There are, there are examples of crosses to be found in the catacombs from the third century. But its use heavy use in the church did not really start to become uh, critical and principal until the 4th century. And especially with the institutionalizing of the church as part, as first of all a recognized religion of the Roman Empire, and then as the religion of the Roman Empire, the only accepted the official government religion of the empire. So it kind of began with Constantine, although the use of the cross was known and was present in certain iconographic usages. And by cross, I don't necessarily mean what we think of as the Latin cross. I mean what we call the Cairo, which is shorthand for Christ, and it's more of a St. Andrew's cross, like that. A chrismon. Mm-hmm. Well, we have a chris. We have chrismons that are shaped that. Exactly. 
and then the row in the middle. And that symbol became common. And then also you could find crosses that are written like that because it was seen as a combination of the cross and the row together. And it was this symbol that was placed on the shields of Constantine's soldiers when they invaded and that uh, he decided that by that symbol he would be victorious or he claimed that God told him this. And it was after that that they sent forth the edict that allowed for the toleration of Christianity. And it was after that the cross in all of its various manifestations <clears throat> went from being just one of many symbols in this case within the early church a, a symbol of the death of Jesus and the, the atoning death of Jesus and it played a role but it wasn't a principal role it was just one of many symbols and it became a principal symbol after that because of Constantine's victory and he attributing it to that so he Constantine's churches probably had that on top of them which around them. Uh, yeah they had the symbol that symbolism became because the church became came above ground right. both literally and figuratively it could therefore they could have great big churches. They could have temples. They could have basilicas. And they had to adorn the interior with something, and they adorned them with images from the Bible. Pictures of Jesus, pictures of Mary and Jesus and Joseph, pictures of the crucifixion itself, pictures of the resurrection, i.e. an empty tomb, uh, and pictures of a cross in many different formations. And you can find in iconography from the 4th and the 5th century um, all sorts of crosses. The standard Latin cross, the T cross, which is probably the cross they actually used, mm -hmm. the St. Andrew's cross, which you can find a whole lot of. Mm -hmm. um, all sorts of different. And then some of the crosses picked up elements like the, the titulus on the top and the footboard on the bottom, and that's the Orthodox cross. Uh, <laughs> all sorts of different features. And, of course, the most important feature in Eastern Orthodoxy and Western Orthodoxy, i.e. Catholicism, is, of course, Jesus being on him. And hence you get the crucifix, an image of the crucifixion itself. And uh, in the church, both East and West, that became one of the principal images. Although the, the others were used that became the principal image by the 6th century, almost universal. So that use of an iconographic image is obviously in place, and usages of iconography is in place, and was found warrant even in some of the writings of Paul where he says that Jesus is the icon of the invisible God. Hence, you could draw an image of Jesus and it would be okay. Not according to some people, but but you could find biblical war for it. And uh, that kind of thing also provided room for this. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's speaking about utilization of things that God has created as gods. Not so much pointing to Yahweh 
but that becomes the God. Okay. But if God is invisible, yeah. you don't really have a hook to put on when you when you right. worship something. You don't have any hook to put anything on. So you could what? You could pick a tree or whatever. Well, Jesus is the, the hook. <laughs> wait, 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 I thought a primitive man. Now, talking about primitive man, here's a good example of that. When they were at the foot of Mount Sinai and Moses was up getting the Ten Commandments, and they were down, down on the foot having the big party. Remember, Aaron says that, give me all your gold and we'll put it in the pot and I'll fashion out of it a golden calf. And then you can worship this as your God, the God that brought you out of Egypt, out of captivity. And this can then be your focus of worship. And I think that Aaron, in his own mind, rationalizing it, thought to himself, if they really want to have an image to worship, I'll create them an image, a golden calf, that they can then identify as Yahweh. He doesn't have the Ten Commandments yet, so he doesn't know that's, that's a no <laughs> yeah. And he has the practice of the Egyptians to follow in terms of what he's fashioning. And so he's thinking, hey, okay, this is the Yahweh who we've been following. What's wrong with that? How could that be a problem? And of course, Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments. Oops. <laughs> Oops, indeed. You ever see the History of the World Part 1 by Mel Brooks where he comes down with three tablets? I bring you my fifth, these 15, and then he drops one. Oh, oh yeah. ten. Ten. Ten Commandments. <laughs> Well, <laughs> they didn't have them yet. And then, of course, he comes down and he questions him. And he says, how'd this happen? He says, well, we put the gold on and melted it down. And look what jumped out. I mean, <laughs> wow. Looks like a cow. It looks like a cow. Exactly. <laughs> so um, I have a feeling that that's in part what many people were trying to do. Nevertheless, it takes it off target. And there were religious movements, the philosophical religious movements, that were able to worship, have a concept of a deity that is not localized in something that you can imagine or touch or manipulate. And so it's possible to do it. And, and that's kind of what's being spoken of here. Okay, you, I was thinking more primitive, primitive. Even more primitive than that. Yeah. Animistic, where they worshipped uh, animals or, or sticks and rocks and, that, and the sun and the moon and that kind of stuff. And Paul would have been unhappy about that too, wouldn't he? Of course he would <laughs> Because he's exchange, they are exchanging something that was created and worshipping it instead of the creator. Now, we can get all highfalutin in terms of our cultural expectations and understandings and assign certain identities, you know, and say, okay, well, this is an advanced culture. This is an advanced religious expression. In the end, it does come down to the very simple idea of what are you worshiping? Are you worshiping that rock, that star that we call the sun? Are you worshiping that image of a human being that you've named Apollo? Are you worshiping that combination animal falcon guy? Or are you worshiping God? The God. The creator. 
and that uh, let, let's bring it into Christianity. Are you worshiping that cross? Is it that that cross? The cross? That's God? No. Is 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 the Bible God? Do you, do you worship the Bible? It's 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 a creature. It's not the creator. Well, I know certain people who treat it as if it's the creator and do worship it, engage in a form of idolatry called Bibolatry. Some you know people set the church up as as God. We're we're constantly making idols out of things and out of people. And anytime that happens, you're worshiping the creation and not the creator. Now you can get very sophisticated and say, well, and this is what Christianity did with the development of iconography and statuary. They said, well, this image is like the icon of the invisible God that Jesus is. And we look through it to the deity that it represents to us. I.e., <laughs> since this is Yahweh being represented here, we're looking through it like a window to Yahweh. And that's what Eastern Orthodoxy does, and that's what Western Orthodoxy, Catholicism, does in iconography. Now, if they were all, if everybody who practiced it was very clear about that, then you don't have that much of a problem. Unfortunately, not everybody's clear about that. And they end up treating the icon as if it is that deity or that expression of deity or that saint or whatever. And then they extend that practice to the saints themselves. As if the saints have a, a, a deified character. And you can go on and on and on with, with um, the, the devolution of a philosophical understanding of iconography. But when you, when you run it back to where Lee was, I think, I don't know about Lee, but what bothers me is the fairness, justice, which we know there is an ace that God knows in this mystery, but thank you. Save your breath. <laughs> but uh, but I haven't said that. And um, you so you got these people. They got an invisible God. It's the creator of everything. A cow's natural. It creates a whole bunch of things like milk and meat for people. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So and baby, and baby cows, cows that you can another, then milk and other creatures. Yeah, that's what you can Good, do. Good, nice veal. You know, veal yeah, parmesan. Oh. The chicken. I mean, you don't think about chicken, the eggs. Chicken, chicken. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I like all that. Why? It's almost like we're not, but it's almost like you're holding. We're holding against the people. They should have known that the Creator, because it says here, you should have looked around you and seen everything that was created, and you should have thought that this invisible Creator is up there for you not to hang a hook on. If they had, sorry. No. <laughs> Assuming they had the light sufficient to see that. And the statement here is essentially that even from the very beginning they have that light. But did, during Abraham's time, didn't they stack rocks on top of another just to the place? It was a holy place. Markers. Yeah, the place, yeah. Yeah, marker, sure. Yeah. Markers for holy, holy places. Yeah. Uh, there is the poles. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> a yeah. worship pole oh, yeah. they did all sorts of interesting things right. with um, those were not seen as deities or gods but they Just nevertheless places. were the worship equipment and sacred poles well, how about the holy of holies where you couldn't even go yeah. <laughs> sacred, there's nothing wrong with sacred places in that sense Just so long as you don't make that god or your, 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 your holy deity a lot of people do and turn 
good created things, things that are good, into gods themselves. The focus, therefore, becomes who are you worshiping? That chicken or cow? Or are you worshiping the creator? And you could make a philosophical argument that to the extent that they said, okay, this cow is like the creator because this cow gives us many wonderful things, gives us milk from which we can make cheese, gives us fields from which we can have veal parmesan, gives us these things. And therefore, this cow is like God. That's really, this is really, I'm stretching this to the, I mean, this is like taffy all the way to the extreme here. You could make yeah. a statement that that is similar to the iconographical approach of Christianity where we say we can use images in stained glass or icons or whatever to represent the biblical stories or Jesus or what have you, even Yahweh. But the problem is, is that they never stopped with that as a symbol or an image, they then ended up worshiping the cow or worshiping the chicken or whatever. And that's where you get a problem. That's where you, that's where you slip into, icon, into idolatry. Yeah, whenever it takes the focus from being uh, using that item to remind you of mm. the relationship that you have with God or mm -hmm. remind you of worshiping God like those altars did mm -hmm. that Abraham would have set up. Mm -hmm and you turn and start worshiping the thing itself, that's, that's, where, that's what he's talking that's about. Where, that is where idolatry comes in. Right. Who becomes God? And you know, the, the, the praying has always interested me in the groups that pray to saints or, mm -hmm. as opposed to praying to God because to mm -hmm. me that's really doing the same, the same thing. Mm -hmm. God never intended us to pray to saints because you're substituting that saint for the power that was given to Jesus. The uh, practice of praying to saints began within the context of intercessory prayer. The belief that uh, you praying to God for me or my mother praying to God for me has purpose and meaning and, and is a good thing. The argument is then drawn, why should one's death, the death of any saint, any Christian, in their ability to pray for me? It shouldn't. Therefore, our deceased relatives could, in theory, because they're in heaven in the immediate presence of God, why shouldn't they be able to pray for me? They're there, my goodness. Their prayer should be even more efficacious than being separated by the gulf that we also share now and praying for us from here, praying from over there should be even better. Hence, that began the evolutionary process then of saying, okay, well, why should it be limited to just those people that you actually knew in their lives here? Why not ask uh, saints who lived 150 years ago to pray for you? I mean, they're part of the communion of the saints. They're, they're still alive with Christ in heaven right now. Why can't we ask them to pray for us? They're in a great position of, uh, around the holy altar. And uh, my goodness, and, and this is how it occurred. And then they said, 
Mary, the mother of Jesus, was such a, a wonderful person. She gave herself for God to be born into the world through her. That was an incredible act of self-giving love and devotion to God. So, and, and it's Jesus' mom, for crying out loud. So why shouldn't we ask her to pray for us? I mean, Jesus is going to listen to mom, right? You know, and you, you know, Jewish mom. I mean, come on. I mean, that, I'm joking, but but I'm my point is still valid. That is how it evolved. So it wasn't so much praying to them for whatever it is that you're looking for. It's you're you're asking them to pray to God intercessory for you, and then God then gives you what it is you're asking for. Now. I, I say that because if you talk to Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox theologians today, that's what they will tell you they're doing. Is there any support at all to in in the Gospels that they couldn't turn to to say that that was ever anything that God intended? No, to have? it's entirely extra biblical. It's in fact, you, it's there is nothing in Scripture that would underwrite or say. It's a valid thing to ask people who've died to keep praying for you. There's no indication that they actually would know what your prayers are or could hear them. There's no, there's no biblical justification for it. But that's never stopped the church from doing things and theologizing about it and engaging in practices. And that's kind of how that evolved. I think the idea is a sound one that prayer doesn't end with death. In fact, it becomes absolutely eternal and continuous because that's what you're doing you're worshiping God gathered at the altar and so uh, that idea is is not invalid whether or not it is valid to then say I'm at I, that I can ask Mary the mother of Jesus to pray for me I'm not sure is a valid one but I'm not 100% willing to say that so long as someone is doing it in that respect, saying, saying the rosary in that respect, Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. I mean, that's what they say in the rosary. The first part of it's a quote from Luke. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. And so... The, what they say begins biblically and then enters into a practice that was common in the, before the 10th century, which was death didn't end prayer. Hence, someone who's in glory can pray for you. That's the leap that is interesting because, yes, death doesn't end prayer, but it's their ability in, in the state of being death to pray and worship God continually, uh -huh. which is a different thing from you having access. Who even thinks they have access to me, your... Can I ask my dad to pray for me right now? In all honesty, I have done so. Whether or not he hears me is entirely irrelevant to me. It helped me then in my own prayers to God to know that my dad is at the throne of grace right now. And I know my dad loves me. And that's really what was always important to me in that idea of saying, Dad, I'm really in a pickle. Pray for me. Does he love you more than Jesus? Does he love me more than Jesus loves me? Absolutely not. So why go to a, I mean, if it's an important prayer to get to mm -hmm. God, yep. why not go to 
vehicle that has been told that maybe we were closer to this vehicle you're talking about in our world and, based, we, and we give him credence for going to the other world based on well based on your argument then you should never ask anybody else ever to pray for you ever even though there's biblical witness for it so it's not a either or proposition it's a both and proposition I pray to God asking whatever circumstance it may be and I ask my mother mother I need your prayers for this that and the other why can I not also ask my dad it's a it's a very powerful argument the question is does he can he hear me I don't know I have no biblical warrant for it one way or the other there's no biblical there's no Bible that says he can't well, we just hope he can we, we don't know we just hope that's where you get into that nebulous area of there's no biblical warrant one way or the other, therefore are we free to practice it? This has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Yeah, I'm still fascinated. I don't care. I have one other question about you know, intercessory prayer is an interesting sure. Where does, does Jesus talk about that being, other than himself being the intercessory prayer to God? Where does Jesus give his blessing on intercessory prayer being uh, something that we should do? One example, it's a small stretch, but it's the one that came to my mind instantly, was when he sent his disciples out and told them to go out and proclaim the gospel and told them to pray for people who need healing. And told, and also with regards to, for example, the uh, exorcism of demons, these come out with much prayer and fasting. So he does give directive for praying in general and praying for others in that context. I'd have to look up and see if I could find other references. I'm sure there are several where he's talking about prayer for others. But Paul gives plenty of examples of praying for others. He elicits prayers for himself. He says he's praying for other people. So you've got biblical warrant for it in the New Testament. You've got plenty of biblical warrant for it in the Old Testament. So I'm not sure if Jesus ever came right out. And I know he does say in a few places, you know, the sins of any that you forgive, they are forgiven. The sins of any that you retain, they are retained. That forgiving is a form of prayer. And the retaining is too. So, so in, in a sense, uh, yeah, he does. And you can imply it from some of the things that he says. Whether or not he ever comes out and gives a directive to you know, pray for people in these circumstances, I don't know. I'd have to look it up. Interesting question. Now. I'll have to look that one up. Where were we? <laughs> we were talking about we were talking about idolatry, and we we flew into it when we talked about iconography and the practice of Christian iconography. And where did it begin with regards to the cross? So that kind of gets us back on this in the, on track. And they exchanged the verse twenty three of chapter one. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God, the doxa glory of the immortal God for images, iconos, uh, resembling a human mortal, a mortal human being, or birds, or four-footed animals, or reptiles, or as I said, combinations of the above, as we saw in some religions. Therefore, because they 
didn't pay attention to what God was saying in creation itself. And even though they knew God, worshipped idols that they had created or idols, things that God had created and never intended for worship. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So, the due penalty, the punishment for idolatry is to be given up to the lusts of your heart, to impurity, to the degrading of one's body amongst oneself with others because they exchange the truth about God for a lie. That's a penalty. That is this consequence. So idolatry, the practice of idolatry, is what produces this result. The being given over to the lusts of their hearts. So I think that could, yeah. I don't, you don't think it could be lustful and do that without exchanging? When you are being lustful, who is your God? Not the big one, whatever you're lusting for. <laughs> you, are. you are. You are. Your appetite, your desire. Who is in control of you? Your desire. I mean, we can, this lust bit is kind of racy. You can make this a little more simple. What if the lust of my heart is to eat a great big plate of enchiladas? Purely hypothetical, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, just, right now, actually, actually yeah. Um, but in a, in a weak moment, driving by ponchos or someplace, you know, where I could easily go in and get a massive load of horrible Mexican food, um, that evil stuff. Uh, when You're talking yourself into it. <laughs> I'm actually talking myself out of it. When I feel that desire, and it's a real desire, to turn in and go eat there. Who's in charge? Am I in charge? Is God in charge? Or, or is it the desire to eat that food in charge? Oh, the desire is it goes against what you really want. Then you got a problem. Precisely. In my current state, it's not what I really want. It's not what God wants for me right now to go pig out on enchiladas. There may be a time and a place when that's appropriate. But right now, it's not for me. Hence, for me, notice that's a relative statement. For me, it would be a sin. It would be jumping after the lust of the heart. And who's in charge? Not God. Not even my will in union with God. Because it certainly isn't in that moment. It's that lust. And if I leap into it, then, then I've fallen to it. I have been given over to the lust because my, my, my God is no longer God but an idol, that desire. Unless you think that the God is, of all, your God is telling you to do something. Right. Eat the enchiladas. Yes. <laughs> Eat your the body meat. Will. It's paradoxical, Greg. Yes. 
But then you wouldn't be going against what your your conscience is telling you. Yes. So it would be okay. But if if I'm in a like last night, I took mother out for dinner for her birthday, and we went and had some wonderful food, and I had a lovely steak and lovely vegetables and a lovely salad and a glass of wine, and we had a wonderful time. And there was absolutely nothing sinful in doing that. First of all, what I ate was in accord with what I should be eating. Maybe it was a little bit more. I should have had the petite filet, not the regular filet, but it was still absolutely fabulous. And I loved it. And it was wonderful being there with my mother, and that, that was all positive. Nothing wrong with that. Not at all. That was, that was in accord with God's will for me at that moment, and as, as I could discern it. And in my soul, in my heart, I knew that what I was doing was right. But if I were to leave here tonight and go to CC's Pizza and graze for an hour and a half at the pizza buffet, that would be problematic. There would be something wrong. Somebody other than God would be in charge of me in that moment. And I know it. I can't see the jump between worshiping something and then all of a sudden it's a lust. The worship of that something that act of idolatry means that you're taking God, the true God and creator of the universe, out of the equation and leaves you godless except for that which you set up, uh, something else or maybe even yourself. And in so doing, therefore, since you do not have God in charge, it becomes almost you're pulled in any direction at all. And you can be pulled in the direction of your lusts. Easily, more easily, far more easily. It can happen when you have God in charge. That's called sin. And the desire to sin is great. Sin is falling short of the glory of God, of what God wants you to do. It seems like you'd have to have rules. What rules? Well, okay. That it, first, you'd have to know the right God to worship, and then you'd have to know his rules. In the developed format, yes. But if you want to get very simple, um, the right God to worship is the creator. Simple as that. Not that rock over there, or that bird flying through the sky, or that sun in the sky, but the one who created those things. I'm just afraid Paul Gunner is going to say, and you know the rules because they're in your heart, and I just don't want to that. Well, think about it. But, but in a sense, that's true. That is what he's saying. In a sense, what are the rules? What was the in the final equation, what, what is the rule that Jesus came up with when he was asked, what is, the, what is the law? What is the greatest commandment? I really should just shut up because I keep wanting to talk about primitive man, not Jewish people in the, in the Jewish going through their history. Well, Jesus was really out there because he's saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's the rule? That's Jesus the rule. Jesus giving you about no, what, how long is the Torah? I'm saying before that. Before the, right. I understand what you're saying. But even primitive man knew things like murder is wrong. That what was wrong? Murder is wrong. Murder, not killing for food or killing to protect yourself. Murder. <laughs> murder. Not that I would modernize that. <laughs> which is, you know, which is taking you out of the primitive man context. That's why I said murder is wrong. 
I mean, uh, and the concept of worshiping the creator and not the creation is, a, is both a highly developed philosophical idea, but also a very simple one. But you, you'd have to walk a very thin line to say that they knew all the rules and from somewhere. All the rules can be reduced to one. Well, two. Love the Lord with all your love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, how hard is that? Well, if you're a primitive man, <laughs> it's down to it, 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 you're worshiping, worshiping a lizard. Yes. I don't think you're sophisticated enough to really know what the rules are. Well, it, it, well we're coming to the part where it's going to differentiate us from the Jews. Okay, if we're talking about Jewish, the Jewish history, fine. But primitive man, if, if Paul's okay. talking about primitive man, that's one thing. If Paul's talking about the Jews... His basic focus is on the people yeah. who existed in his day. Okay, fine. Jews and Greeks, Gentiles and non-Gentiles. Okay. And we're talking in our own context, too, yeah. by the way. You know, Christian okay. and non-Christian, if you want to call it that. Believer and non-believer. Fader and non-fader. You're, you're asking a fundamental philosophical question with regards to primitive humans. You can make a really strong argument that humans actually earlier on were not as primitive in, in their thinking as we sometimes seem to think they are. But that's another discussion for a different time. Well, okay. <laughs> that just confused me. I just thought we were jumping, but... Back and forth. Well, what, what was bringing it up for you, the question was being brought up for you by the statement from ever since the creation of the yeah. world. Yeah, that's, yeah. From yeah, the that's very well, beginning. That's grooming. Well, from the very beginning in terms, in a, in a sense, you could say from the very beginning of the creation, we here today looking at it can say this, this is true. People in Paul's day looking at it could say it's true. Whether or not the people who were there at the creation could say it was true this is another question. I would make you an argument that they actually knew it was true because they walked and talked with God in the garden. But that's another story altogether. Mm -hmm. uh, as I said, that's another discussion. Well, I and mean, even with the Noah and his family, I mean, you could go back. I'm not sure what your definition of primitive man is, but that's you know, primitive. yeah, they there's eight people who probably saw some of the most obvious handiwork of God and from them we are now existing look how distorted it's come through mm -hmm. the ages look at the uh, Jewish people they had seen God's wonders in the Exodus story with the plagues on Egypt they had come out of Egypt they had gone through the Red Sea and here they are at the foot of Mount Sinai and Moses takes a little long and so they decide to make a golden calf I mean it's not as if, I mean, they had. It didn't take long. They followed the pillar of smoke by day and the pillar of fire by night. They walked through the sea. They watched Pharaoh's armies get wiped out. These people have been with God, walked with God, followed God, and then they turn around and say, Here's your God, a calf made out of gold. So, you know, it, it, it even comes down to that, ex that exact event. Rather than worship Yahweh, I mean, maybe they, maybe they should have, they would have been on better ground if they had simply had this pillar of fire they could somehow create and then say this symbolizes and reminds us of God. Yeah, but they make a lot closer to what they followed at night. Do the burning bush. 
But when you start praying to that to do things for you, right? That it becomes your that idol. Reminding you about the greatness of God and therefore then praying to God. That's yes, the, that's the difference that Paul's talking about. And that's where we get most of our Christian symbols are fine because they remind us of what Christ did on that cross. When you see a cross, you think of Christ. Yeah. It should jog your. What he did on the cross for us, his death, atoning sacrifice, the whole nine yards. But if that cross becomes your God, you've got a problem. Okay, and that's what we're talking about here in a, in a, in a very fundamental sense when you exchange the creature and make it your God. You know, instead of worshiping God, you worship the creature. And because you have done that, God turns you over to whatever you want to do. Your punishment is have at it. And Paul had great, I mean, I, I, I think I, I agree with Lee in terms of, I think Paul's focus is more towards the people that he's speaking to of the day, the actual Greeks that are there, mm -hmm. and the actual Jews oh, that are there. Absolutely. And it can't be more prevalent, the fact that the Jewish people of his day worship their own laws mm -hmm. so much more oh, yeah. that they even missed the very God incarnate through Christ. Exactly. And he would have said about the Greeks, I know from your philosophers that y'all know about the Creator. And still you worship, you know, Zeus and Athena instead of Yahweh. Or the Creator whose name you don't know. You know, the the the, 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 the unknown God altar. <laughs> uh, I agree. The context is then and there, and of course us today. You know, instead of going into the philosophical argument back. For this reason. God gave them up to degrading passions. Their women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural. And in the same way also the men, giving up natural intercourse with women, were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. Which was? Uh, the, the due penalty or their error? Their due penalty, being without God, which was what started in the first place. If you diagram the sentence, which is what I did earlier, mm -hmm. uh, a couple, three weeks ago, their error is idolatry. The due penalty mm -hmm. is being cast adrift to their own desires and mm -hmm. needs. Being without God. Being without God is the end result. This says perversion, and that's the thing that screws it up here. And that's Your translation's a little is weird. It is weak there. Yeah, it is very weak. Now, I can see where the homosexual thing came from. If you're calling that perversion instead of error of being without God. Mm -hmm. Yes, Bill? Yeah. The word degrading, that doesn't sound like a real strong word. Is that, how, do, how do you translate Other translations uh, can... How does the NIV render that in verse 26? Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Shameful lust as opposed to degrading passions. Which verse are you? Verse 26. 26. 26. So I have dishonorable. Dishonorable. Have dishonorable what? That's what I have in mind, or 26. Dishonorable lust? Dishonorable passions. Passions. Mm -hmm. All right. Think about five paragraphs. It sounds right? sort of mild, really. I mean, degrading. I'm looking at it wrong, but just degrading. Mm -hmm. Says evil things. Oh, evil, evil, things. evil what? Evil things. The living says evil things. The New Living says 
Uh, shameful desires. The NAS reads degrading passions, degrading, devaluing, devalued desires or passions would be another way of reading that possibly. For this reason, because of idolatry, essentially, because of the tendency to place something as God other than God in your life. He even had good things as God instead of God. Family. Country. Church. Yeah. Doing good deeds. Whatever drives you. Yeah, whatever, whatever compels you, drives you, guides you, gives you direction in life. It can be a good thing, even. Now, a good thing generally doesn't generate some of what we see here in terms of its negativeness. But it's the first step in walking away from God. The devil lures us away from God in small baby steps. <laughs> so frequently. So frequently. For this reason, because of idolatry, God gave them up to degrading passions. Passions that devalued their humanness. Their women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural. That's an interesting <laughs> phrase. First question is, how deep do y'all want to get into this? <laughs> well, I think it's interesting because I think it's worthwhile to at least get your interpretation of, of mm -hmm. this because it seems to me on the surface that verses 26 and 27 yes. are presenting a case of some interaction between women and women or men and women or men and men that are not what God or what Paul's referring here as natural mm -hmm. and therefore not good right. and not in line with what God would want. That's the, that's the surface reading. And in the same way also men giving up natural intercourse with women were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now, one question I think it's worthwhile asking is what was Paul's understanding of homosexual practice in his day? What we define of as homosexuality as opposed to certain homosexual practices, which the Bible does speak against, are two different things. Mm -hmm. Paul's understanding of homosexual practice is articulated within the context of pagan ritual sex. Oh, it doesn't go all the way back to Lot's time in that town? Sodom and Gomorrah was yeah. destroyed for other reasons. For other reasons. And, <clears throat> and the, the sin that was desired to be committed there was sex with angels. The men were angels. Oh. But did the men know they were angels mm -hmm. at the time? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. The people of, the, and it's the people, not the men of Sodom. So, so, so men when, and women. When you of think Sodom. the Jews got their, their aversion? Their aversion came from the worship of Dagon and other deities of the Philistines and, and the other uh, Canaanite tribes who practiced ritual homosexual sex with the priests of the temple. 
I knew you were going to say that. I was just looking for Leviticus. There are two passages in the Old Testament that speak specifically about it. Genesis, Exodus, or 20. Yes. It's in 18. It's underlined in mine. It's in chapter 18, beginning at... Well, there's a whole lot of stuff in here, by the way, that uh, we actually practice and don't think second about. But, uh, verse 21. You shall not give any of your offspring to sacrifice them to Molech, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. You shall not have sexual relations with any animal and defile yourself with it, nor shall any woman give herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. It is perversion. Now, that it comes from this specific section there dealing with the worship of Molech or other Canaanite or Philistine gods. The other prohibition is the same in Leviticus. So you've got two references to it, and in both cases it's within the context of pagan religious practices that are forbidden. The sacrificing of your chitlins to Molech, engaging in sexual practice within pagan religious activities. If you pull it out into normal society, away from religion and practice it, would it be a sin? Paul doesn't know of that. His only, his only experience of it has been, first of all, the Hebrew historic experience is right here. The then current experience in pagan, Roman, and Greek practices is very similar because in their day and age, homosexual practices took place in pagan temples when you would have sex with the uh, high priest or priestess. Isn't this kind of going along, though, with preserving the health of everybody with, with all their other laws? Like, don't eat pork because you might get trigonosis. Don't eat blood because it might kill you. Don't drink, have bloody parts because it might kill you. Mm -hmm. Don't have sex with your mother because your father might kill and you. And mm -hmm. this type of activity also involves the exchanging of bodily fluids. And that's a big no-no yeah. in the Hebrew law. You don't exchange blood or any kind of fluid with another person. You just don't do it. You just don't do it. So French kissing is out, <laughs> even between married people. So, so the context, both the biblical Levitical context of the prohibition and the prohibition and its practice in Paul's day, its principal practice, now there were other practices, would have, would have been oriented around religion, i.e., People who engaged in homosexual practices did so in the practice of idolatry. Ding, 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 ding. You win the prize. Well, you could... The you, context here is idolatry. And you could... Carrying that, that forward to the, the context of giving into your desires. Mm -hmm. And that also, you know, if, if you look at... An unnat the, the homosexuality behavior it, today, could you not make a connection that that is also giving into in, your desire? Yes, and in a, in a way that is not in line with what God is talking about. Well, well that's scientifically, they say no, that, they're, that they're, or they are born and that is their natural and orient. That's the question of orientation. Natural. 
Don't confuse the, with the facts. The okay? Hebrew people and Paul in his day had no real conception of orientation. Sexual orientation was assumed to be always towards the opposite gender, without exception. Hence, sex with someone of the same gender would be classified axiomatically as unnatural. But sex between two people who are oriented towards the same gender would not necessarily be unnatural. So in Paul's context in his day, you have first the understanding that homosexual practices are by nature idolatrous because they are conducted within the worship of idols, both Hebraically in Leviticus and in his own day in the pagan religions. Now, in Gentile culture, homosexual practice outside the temples was frowned upon. Ooh, that's strange. Pederasty, uh, where an older man would have a younger, uh, we would call him a boy, but we were someone over the age of 12, and would engage in sex with that kid until that kid grew up, was frowned upon heavily in Greek culture. Ooh, that's gross, and they didn't want to, they didn't like it. They considered it a negative. It was less frowned upon in Roman culture. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. The Greek culture frowned upon it heavily, uh, principally because, uh, and you can go back into Greco, uh, Greek laws about it, it made it difficult for Sparta and Athens to reproduce if they weren't engaging in sex with women and producing babies. And being fruitful and multiplying was important for Sparta and Athens at that time, politically and militarily. Rome had less of a problem with the practice. Although it was still the senators who engaged in it were still the brunt of lots of jokes, okay. But it's in part many of those jokes, the language that was used, many of those. No, it hasn't changed. <laughs> <laughs> that hasn't changed. Like last year, right? <laughs> in the men's room at the airport. Ooh, wow. <laughs> um, things haven't changed. But the the jokes that were articulated in Rome at that time against people who engaged in it, popular and, and, and public figures who engaged in it, were all oriented around, oh, they're just like those stupid people who go to us in such a temple and engage in sex there. So it, it ended up becoming a religious jab. So even in the Roman and, uh, culture and the Greek culture in that day, it had strong religious overtones. And it was not a positive one, i.e., if it went on outside the temple, there's something wrong with you. Gives new meaning to the separation of church and state. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so, so in terms of whether or not there, it's possible to have homosexual practices that don't want to follow this is the question. Essentially, has been asked. My answer is, look at people whom we know who are gay, who are in committed relationships and have been for decades with the same person, who go to church, sing in choirs, tithe, support the church through their prayers, their presence, their gifts, and their service. We've got some in this congregation. And they don't worship Zeus or Athena, and they don't worship themselves. They're worshiping God. There's something amiss here in terms of the statement. It was Paul's understanding 
that idolatry was the source of homosexual practices and homosexual desires. But we know that homosexual identity is not oriented in idolatry, but seems to be either a prenatal uh, genetic disposition or a neonatal formation, and maybe a combination of all of the above. So they may not be giving into their desires. Giving into their desires, they may be giving into their natural state. Instead of instead of exchanging natural for unnatural, they are following the natural inclination. If they are, if if sexual orientation is a real thing, and one can be sexual oriented gay, then they may be following their proper orientation and not exchanging negative, you know, one for the other. So I could make an argument that this speaks against the unnatural sexual practices that can be found either in heterosexual practice or homosexual practice. But if it's a natural desire, a natural orientation, then it may not be a violation if it's a natural orientation, and God knew that that was part of the natural orientation, why is there nothing in Scripture that speaks to that as being also a Very good natural question. orientation? My guess, this is just a, I'm hypothesizing, was that when the Old Testament was written, it was important to be fruitful and multiply. Homosexual practice if conducted exclusively by those who are oriented that way, does not produce offspring. Now, we know lots of, of gay people who were married before and have children from earlier marriages. And gay people can reproduce, it happens, but they have to do it in different ways. But in the ancient world, <laughs> being fruitful and multiplying, one of the principal directives that everybody was given at the end of the flood, uh, was important, and it was important for the Jewish people too when they moved into the promised land and were to subdue it. And it was important for the Greeks to be fruitful and multiply because they, they needed the people to defend their city-states. So in the context of the Old Testament, the needs of the people of God ran contrary to men and women who didn't reproduce. Hence, I could see how it wouldn't get in and the New Testament has other objectives. You ask a good question. You really ask a good question there. I'm not sure that one can come up with a solid answer. Why didn't God say that homosexuality is okay? I don't and, know. And one other point is it's interesting that in, all, in the two references that you brought out, the mention of homosexuality is in a very negative way within a form of idolatry. Right. Now, who's to say, you know... That homosexuality itself is not idolatry in and of itself. Yeah, I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying it, 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 it doesn't seem to me... It seems very clear that God's created man and he created women, and that right. was the union that he blessed. Mm -hmm. and, there, and, you know, as far as sin goes, sin is, it doesn't matter, it's falling short. Right. I don't personally believe there's any ranking of sin in terms of the way it is and I also believe it's everybody's individual personal relationship that mm -hmm. you work it out with God mm -hmm. and God accepts us all however that is by you, the way that is exactly what I believe okay mm -hmm. if you take and you then want to make an argument 
to say that 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 behavior, homosexuality, is within God's plan and, and the Bible supports that, I just haven't been convinced, and I'm open-minded. If, if it's there, I'm objective enough to... Why isn't there a positive or proactive support of it in Scripture? That's what I'm somewhere? saying. It, it does, the, two, the, two, the, the, only, the only extant negatives are articulated within idolatrous practice. My answer is... Uh, as I've said, that was the cultural setting that they knew in their day and age. Now, uh, you can take the position that you and I take with regards to you, you work it out, you and God together. If it's a sin for you, it's a sin for you. It doesn't matter if there's a Bible for it or not. Nevertheless, if homosexual orientation is a sin, then Christ died for it grace is present to transform and relieve one of it and yet all of the thousands of homosexual Christians that exist tend to be pretty unanimous in saying while behavior is changeable orientation doesn't seem to be God can relieve one of the desire necessarily to go engage in sex. But God doesn't seem to relieve one of the desire for whom one wants to have sex with in terms of the gender. And that's been studies that have been done of lots of different homosexuals across a large spectrum of both space and time. For example, Roman Catholic priests who are gay have been studied and they say God's grace is possible has in fact made it possible for me to live a life as a priest without engaging in sexual activity and the desire to engage in sex has declined over time. That's behavior. But with whom I want to have sex, they say, has not changed. Reparative therapies that have tried to change people from being gay to being straight can change behavior, but invariably when they go through the process they discover all they're doing is pushing people into having sex with people with whom they are not sexually attracted. And to do that, they then have to fantasize about someone of the same gender. So studies that have been done of the reparative therapy ministries and, and programs out there seem to underlie the idea that if God wanted them to change, God would enable the change. God doesn't seem to be enabling the change in thousands of people who want it, who've asked for it, who begged for it, who prayed for it. If God isn't enabling the change, all God is doing is adjusting behaviors, then maybe that says that God doesn't see the orientation as an issue. Instead, God sees certain behaviors as an issue. Extreme promiscuity, you know, sex with a different partner every night, every night of the week. Kind of it. Maybe that is seen as something that needs to be adjusted, but God doesn't seem to be doing anything with orientation, only behavior. So studies that have been done on that ground seem to underlie the idea that it's more of the behavior that's the issue. And when you go back into the scripture, it's the behavior that's being spoken about. The behavior of going and having uh, sex with the uh, priests of Molech. Uh, behaviors are what are being addressed.
not so much orientations. And that's why I say I would agree with Dr. Furnish when he said that it's that the scripture doesn't speak about homosexuality as we know it, but it speaks about homosexual practices. And the they, it speaks about them within the context of idolatrous practice, which is what they knew about then. And since Paul seemed to say here, and he seems to say very clearly here in verses 24 through 27, that, that homosexual practice is the result of idolatry. Which is not putting it in a very positive light. No. That's practice. Though. It doesn't put it within the... It, it, homosexual practice is put in a very negative light there. Absolutely. But is his judgment right or wrong? From what we can see today, we pretty much know that homosexual practice and homosexuality doesn't result from idolatry. Now, people who are idolatrous and worship themselves and happen to be gay will go and do it, and it becomes their god, absolutely. Just as heterosexuals who engage in sex with different partners every night, and sex becomes their god. About what you're saying, it, it kind of makes sense, almost common sense, which I know is not very common, that Paul wouldn't have a clue about orientation. <laughs> yes. And either would the if he didn't, God help us for the people that, Back after all this other stuff was thought about, decided to write some of it down. You know, Why Paul, would have Paul would not have conceived of orientation at all, with the exception of this, that... He believed, along with everybody else in his day, that everybody was oriented towards the opposite gender by nature. And that no one would be oriented towards the same gender by nature. And when you look at how God set it up, he set it up that Sure. Way. It accords with, with creation. But his analysis of what produces homosexuality or homosexual passion or lust or what, however you want to define it, is oriented towards this issue of idolatry and well, changing the truth of God into a lie. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and I'm not sure that one can say that that fully follows. Many you can say that many homosexual and heterosexual practices are definitely idolatrous. People worship sex all the time. Oh yeah, one of the movie stars. Yeah, recently, right. seriously, uh -huh. recently was having a sexual addiction. He was there, such a nice guy. Too. Oh yeah, see, he such a nice the, guy too. <laughs> How do you know? Don't <laughs> <laughs> you watch his movies? What do you think? I don't watch them. But my point I is, is that you can turn. Last week, newspaper. I don't even know. You can turn three. sexual practice into idolatry, a form of idolatry, where you worship the self and your own sexual desires. And the only way in which they knew about homosexual practice was with an idolatrous context as well. Hence, I would say that's why it's framed this way. But must one therefore conclude that every person who is gay is therefore worshiping themselves or their sexual orientation? No. Not at all. At least I don't see that. I see Paul as, to the extent that he believes that this is an absolute what produces homosexual desire, I see Paul as being, you know, somewhat bound to his cultural setting and his social setting as a Jew, depending upon the Jewish conception of what's natural and unnatural and the cultural setting of his day. 
And he had other examples of that, like women should keep their heads covered when they preach and pray. Was he right there? He himself recognized he wasn't right there. So you can, you can make an argument that while this would speak to certain homosexual practices of his day that were, that were expressions of idolatry, it doesn't necessarily speak to all homosexuality today as we understand it psychologically. Back in the Leviticus section that you read, uh -huh. um, you know, when I when I've read that before, that to say that they are linked, and that's as opposed to listing things that are offensive. Mm -hmm. um, I, I guess I, I never made that leap. So maybe I don't understand the language enough to know that there was a direct link between the the the, the wording in twenty two. 23 with a direct relationship with what was going on with 21 as opposed to here's here's some things that are just that are just not good remember the context is everything right and that's true here and if you follow it on in verse 24 do not defile yourself in any of these ways i.e the ways that we just listed for by all these practices the nations i am casting out before you have defiled themselves this is yet another way in which God is telling the people, separate yourselves from those people that I'm sending you into and casting out before you. You're going to be different from these people. You're not going to engage in all this stuff. Look at verse 19. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. You shall not have sexual relations with your kinsman's wife and defile yourself with her. Now, that's not within pagan practice, but menstrual uncleanness is absolutely a religious issue. Any issue of blood makes you ritually impure and incapable of approaching an altar to make sacrifice. Therefore, you have to avoid women in their menstrual uncleanness to the extent of, you know, you don't uncover her nakedness. And... You shall not have sexual relations with your kinsman's wife. Well, you're violating a covenant there by having sexual relations with your kinsman's wife. That's a religious practice, a religious uh, barrier. And sexual relations is an exchange of fluids. And when you exchange fluids, you're, you, are, you are spiritually unclean and invalid candidate to go to the altar. But I guess my question is, what connects verse 22 to 21? I don't see an and. I almost see a, a punctuation at the end of verse 21. Well, there's a period in my English translation. That I am the Lord. But what connects, what connects the, you shall not offer, you, you shall not give any of your offspring to sacrifice them to Moloch, and so profane the name of the Lord your God, I am the Lord. And then immediately, you shall not lie with male as with woman, uh, it was a practice in the worship of Molech to engage in sex with the priests and high priestesses. So it's a, it's, it's a condition by the context of what was done in the worship of Molech. And they also lie, lay with beasts? Yes. You engaged in sex with ritual animals for various purposes. And women with, would lay with women and with the priests, the men, as well. <coughs> the whole sequence here is an actual cataloging of religious practice in Canaanite and Philistine religion. So in 24 then, when he's saying, defile not. not yourselves, 
in any of these things, mm -hmm. it's it's not. Um, you're saying that it is only. You're saying you're. In any and all of the religious and and purity practices of the people into whom I am sending you to take their land. So it's okay to do these things as long as you're not doing them not in necessarily. worship of I'm not mold. saying I'm not saying that it's okay to do them. I'm saying this is how they are articulated. They're articulated within that context. I don't believe that the Hebrew people would have viewed homosexual practice as being a good thing. Firstly, it it doesn't result in children, and God said, "Be fruitful and multiply." So there's that factor, but but at the same time, to then extend it and say this is a reference by God that all homosexual practice is a negative is is hard to make that complete leap given the cultural setting of when it was articulated. You know, you, the cultural setting, and you, you want to read something. Read 18, on 2118, no man who has any defect may come near. 2118. Chapter 21. 2118, no man who has any defect may come near. Give her a chance to get to Okay. Right below 22, <laughs> almost at the end, the last two paragraphs of 21. Oh, you were talking so, about chapter 18 or what? Chapter 21. Chapter, chapter 21, 21, verse 18. 18. Mm -hmm. Oh, the other one. Yeah, I mean, this yeah. is Jew to Jew. This is, hey, if you got any problem. If Stan goes blind in one eye, if I break my leg and I'm lame, I can't go make an offering to God, and I'm going to be listening to that the same way I'm listening to this. Well, I don't think that she or anybody, I don't think that Lee is making an argument either that we got to keep these laws. No. Yeah, no. We're that's, not. That's, that's the time that you're talking yeah. about. That's We're talking about the cultural setting and Paul having been a Pharisee speaking from this context. Yeah. Yet he never applied, I mean, the law, the law for him was a schoolmaster, a teacher to show us what, how much we need God. Nevertheless, his understanding of what was right and wrong in religious practice and what flowed from God's will would have been, would have been devised and developed in this context. And, and I think that needs to be recognized. It also needs to be recognized, I mean, there are some people in the homosexual lobby who will say that since, since homosexuals engage in their sex and it's natural for them and, and straight people engage in their sex and it's natural for them, therefore it's not appropriate for gay people to engage in heterosexual activity or for heterosexuals <laughs> to engage in gay activity because it's unnatural on both sides. I prefer to look at this and say Paul was articulating from within his context and his statement is homosexual practices that he knew about were the result of idolatry. And he would also say certain heterosexual practices that he knew about were idolatry. And they are wrong. And I actually happen to agree with him in that extent. But to then take it and apply it and say all homosexuality, such people with such homosexual orientations, are that way because they are worshiping other gods or themselves or whatever, I don't think I don't think experience shows that. I don't think reason shows that. The heterosexual behavior that Paul speaks about that was wrong was what? Oh, uh, I was thinking that it might have where women exchange natural intercourse for unnatural. Mm -hmm. 
that could mean either women with women or it could mean men and women doing sexual things other than intercourse. For instance, the definition of sodomy in the United States is not just anal intercourse, it's oral sex in most states. Now it's been ignored in many states, but that would be considered unnatural intercourse in many contexts. So you could make that argument. So you would be saying then if you did that outside, if you did that unnatural outside of an, idol um, an idolatrous um, setting. setting, that it's a, that, that it is uh, fine because not necessarily. it's not spoken of. Well, I'm just trying to follow your logic. But if, it, if you're if, if a, section up here if that a, way. If a heterosexual married couple engages in sexual practices that are not traditional intercourse, all right, they're not worshiping Zeus in the process or doing anything like that. He's not a high priest for some other temple, and neither is she. Then they're, they're <laughs> both Christians. <laughs> they're both. Could you draw me a picture? They're both. They're Christian. Yeah, they're both not virgin anymore in this case. But they're both Christians, and they're married to each other. Then I don't have. That I would say that Paul wouldn't have a problem with. Paul would have a problem, possibly, with it being some other form of sex, uh, other than intercourse, based on Jewish practices in that day. But I'm, that's between them and God. I'm not going to say nothing about that. Likewise, I would say that two men or two women who are in a monogamous relationship with each other and have been for months or years and are going to be for the rest of their lives, God willing, that's between them and God. They don't need me getting in the way. I certainly don't want to get in that bed with them. Ba -bum -bum. No, I, I, would, I would absolutely agree with that. But I think I don't see the evidence to go a step further mm -hmm. and say that God condones that or God set that up as a natural if event. If God doesn't condone it or doesn't set it up as a natural event, then God's grace should be working on these people who've been begging God for years to change their orientation. But God isn't. God really, as I said earlier, studies have shown God seems to relieve, relieve the desire to have it frequently or to actually engage in it, but the orientation is still there. And my reading indicates that there's been no example anywhere that's proven out to be true of someone who has truly had their orientation changed. There are people who've claimed it. They end up having sex with people of the same gender later on. The founder of one of the big reparative uh, ministries out there that claims to be able to convert people from being homosexual into heterosexual himself ended up back into a homosexual relationship later on, even though he claimed that his orientation had been changed. What is changeable seems to be behavior. What doesn't seem to be changeable, what God doesn't seem to be changing in anybody, is the orientation. And that, by experience, tells me that maybe God isn't concerned about the orientation. God is concerned about behaviors that are detrimental to people, to being able to worship God. But God doesn't seem to be worried about orientations. And that seemed, that's, that's been the direction I've gone. So even though I don't have scripture for it, I can look at people who have been having this experience and I can say, well, this seems to be what God is doing or not doing. I deal with this by looking at what Paul is saying and the context in which he is saying it. 
and in that limited context, understanding what he is articulating and why. And then I go from there. Maybe we can find out next week what Paul said about single mothers and all the kids that are, uh, you know, illegitimate and how they should be wiped out from the face. I don't know. No, he didn't. But just because he didn't, to me, just because the Bible doesn't say it's good, bad, or indifferent doesn't mean thermonuclear war wasn't really talked about. You get to a bunch of imagery, you know, a bunch of things that we have today. That There's the principle really of is the, the Bible, Bible is the Bible have to give you permission for you to do it. The Church of Christ says yes, but they still have churches <laughs> with sound systems and computers. But they have churches. <laughs> the Bible doesn't give warrant for building a church. Like I said, the Bible doesn't give warrant for having musical instrumentation in your worship. Therefore, they don't have them. But they have church buildings. Mm -hmm. Scripture doesn't give warrant for homosexual homosexuality to be okay, but it doesn't it doesn't seem to be any articulate anywhere where um, all homosexuals, regardless of their setting, uh, there it is in Leviticus, they should be put to death. Wow. Yeah, along, along with the rest of us that aren't perfect, we can't even get close to God. There are lots of reasons. Be, be, there are lots of reasons to be put to death. Back talking your dad. <laughs> now you know there were some good things. <laughs> <laughs> you you have some merit. I'll tell I Nathan that. Yeah, <laughs> along with his brother, right? But there's see, because of their cultural setting, they didn't have that understanding. Right. But I just think that with a lack of evidence supported by the Bible that mm -hmm. comes out on any positive note mm -hmm. towards that orientation, yes. yet there are multiple examples of comments that link it to negative things, right. it leaves you, I think, with an inability to concretely say this is something sanctioned by God. And I think correctly, like you do, that it's between the individual. And In the end, it calls for humility. Absolutely, and it's none. You know, I don't. It, it's none of. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I understand. I'm not against anything. I, I truly believe that. You know, what's right for somebody may be wrong for someone. I'm against thermonuclear. I might war. be able to go to that Mexican restaurant and eat all day long, and I'll yes, be okay with it. Yes, but you don't have a waist that I can do that. And one of these days, I'll be able to do that again. But to make the leap that it is supported as something that is, you know. I just don't see the connection I, I'm not, to make that leap. I'm not willing to make the leap so specifically that homosexuality or homosexual practice in any way is supported by Scripture. But at the same time, I can't, I can't say that it is uncategorically condemned. I would agree with that. And I would also say that because of these limitations of what we're reading here, the limitations of the context in the Old Testament, the limitation in the other incidents in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians, because of all of those limitations... You're using the word limitations, and it's funny, because I, I, yeah, I look at it as it's an activity that's associated with something that is... I'm talking about the limitation of the context of the passage. The, 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 the passage is limited in its application. And because of those limitations... I'm I am not willing to first of all I'm not willing to condemn uncategorically and I'm willing also to say based on experience that something else is going on here than just the surface
We went way over the ball. <laughs> but and you, we didn't get much further than we did the first day. <laughs> well, the good news is that we pick up at 28 next week and we finish the chapter. No, no, you keep reviewing. <laughs> well, no, we won't review that much next time. We'll pick it up. Well, but you see, last time we covered some critical, critical stuff that we had that skipped. Is true. That is true. This time we covered more in depth what we covered the week before last, and we actually got through it, painfully though, painful though it was. Difficult as it is, and we'll probably still be wrestling with it till Jesus comes. <laughs> um, now we pick it up a little more generally, and we can see where it hits us. And then, of course, we'll go into chapter two, where it says, "Therefore, you have no excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others. For in passing yeah. judgment on yeah. another, you condemn yourself." I thought he had a lot of nerve saying that. After all that, after all the mess. <laughs> A whole chapter, which is, which is also, which is also part it is of the ironic, isn't it? It actually reflects something about what Paul says in his whole character. As far as he goes here, his focus is on idolatry. All right. Okay. Not so much on practice, although practices that flow from idolatry are the issue. And he goes through this long list here, this wonderful, powerful list. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Wham, 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 wham. And slanderers, God-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious towards parents. <laughs> I mean, all those evil things, you see. All of these things, I mean, they go all over the place. He's like shooting a scattergun here. <laughs> Even with that, who are you to judge? He is not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. This is the reason we need the Christ on the cross. This is the reason Jesus had to come, because of idolatry. Christ is the answer to this. Christ is the answer to sin, period, in all of its manifestations. And that's what he's here to proclaim. Right now he's setting up the reason why he's not ashamed of the gospel. It's because it's the power of God to salvation from this. So he's setting that part up. Because what's going to follow, he's going to be talking about how, to, how God provides for us to escape been listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2008 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church, 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas, 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.